0: The last time we were in the study of the book of Acts, we looked at Paul's first visit to the city of Athens, and when he first entered into the city, there was something that caught his attention, and that was the city was completely saturated with pagan idols and pagan worship. Now, during the first century in Athens, people visiting the city would have been impressed with everything they saw. They would have been impressed with the magnificent art throughout the city and the intricate architecture of all of the buildings and the different temples, and a lot of people would have been amazed, but the Bible says Paul wasn't amazed. The Bible says that Paul was actually provoked in his spirit, which means that he was angry by what it was that he saw around him. He didn't like it. Now, he wasn't angry with the people at Athens, he was angry rather with the reality that the worship that he knew belonged to his God was now being diverted and and, and being shared with God's idols made of, of stone and silver and gold, and Paul was not okay with that at all. So in in order to be able to redirect the worship that rightfully belonged to God, he began to share the gospel with those in Athens. And he was good at it. We talked about that he 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 was good at what he did. And there were three things that made him good. One thing was that he had eyes to see. Is that he had the ability to be able to look at a culture that seemed to have it all together and recognize that they didn't, that they were spiritually depraved and they were in need of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he had was he had a heart to feel, and that means that he would feel what we call righteous anger when God is not receiving the rightful worship that he is due. And the third thing that made him good at really engaging the culture was that he had a mouth to speak. Now, last Two weeks ago, we talked in great depth about those first two, but we didn't talk a lot about what he actually spoke to this lost generation. And so that's what we want to look at today. And In fact, here, what we're going to find at the last part of chapter 17 is that this is his sermon. It's not his whole sermon that he preached there at Mars Hill, but they're bits and pieces. It's kind of like a summation that Luke gives us of the high points of what he would have preached while in front of all of these great scholars in the city of Athens. on Mars Hill. So we want to take a look at it, but before we do, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. I want you to understand that this passage, that there is more written by commentators and scholars on this particular passage than any other passage in the book of Acts. It has literally been written on time and time and time again, and the reason for that is because there's a disagreement of what we're supposed to do with it. Not so much of how we understand it or what Paul is saying, but, but How are we supposed to use it? How are we supposed to apply it to ourselves? And the reason for that is because on one side, you have a group of people, oftentimes, who are missiologists. That means that they simply study missions in the Bible, how they did it in the Bible. Then they try to find practical ways to be able to do missions in the world today. And what they would suggest is that this is a model, this is a model for you and I as we're going out and trying to share the gospel. This is a way that we can contextualize the gospel. Now let me explain. I keep using these words. Let me explain what they mean. When I mean contextualize, I just simply mean to be able to take the simplicity of the gospel and share it as clearly as we possibly can with any particular people group. So if you're going to share the gospel in Oman, then you're going to have to know a little bit about that culture to be able to engage that culture with the gospel, things that are important to them, ways in which they think and so that's what we mean by contextualization here's the simplest explanation of it it would be like sharing the gospel with an 8-year-old and a man who has his phd right you're not going to share the gospel with the 8-year-old in the same way that you would with somebody who has their phd you would use different language you would use different illustrations you would be more simple with the 8-year-old rather than the one who has been to college for 8 years it would just be different But it would be the same gospel. And so what we find is they they say, what he's doing here is he's giving us an illustration or a demonstration of what it looks like to contextualize. And they look at verse 26, you can actually look, or excuse me, 28. If you look down at it, Paul actually quotes, he quotes both a pagan philosopher and also he refers to some pagan literature, some Greek literature, specifically a poem. And basically all he's doing is he's going from what they know. Know, and he's using it as a bridge to get them to the truth of the gospel. That's all he's doing. That's contextualization. So some people say when we study this we should use it as a model to be able to reach our world. Others completely reject that. Now these are all godly people and they sit back and they go that's not what this is here for at all. In fact Paul himself doesn't believe that this is a model. Now how do they, how do they base that? What they say is that when Paul leaves this city he immediately goes down to Corinth. We'll see that next week. He goes down to Corinth, and there he begins to preach the gospel. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses one through 3 here's what he says to them, reminding them of what he did when he first came to the city of Corinth. He wrote there, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What they will suggest is this, is that Paul learned his lessons when he was in Athens. When he was in Athens, he tried to talk like the Athenians. He tried to engage them with, with secular philosophy and try to try to convince them of God through secular philosophy. But when he got down to First Corinthians, when he got to First Corinthians, when he got down to Corinth, he basically came to the point and goes, you know what? That didn't work at all. It didn't have great success. I'm not going to do that at all. And now all I've chosen to do is to be able to share the simplicity of the gospel: Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So some would say you don't need all of that kind of integral um, argumentation and debate within a culture. All you need is the simplicity of the gospel message. Now the question is this you're sitting there going this is a lot but you need a lot all right this is important for us to understand so how are we supposed to use the text do we preach it as a model or do I preach the whole thing and then I say forget everything that you just learned it's not important anyway what are we supposed to do with it well let me say this I kind of agree with both parties On one side, I think it is important for us to be able to know the culture of the people that we're trying to share the gospel with, understand how they think, understand what's important to them, understand how they view this world and and their worldview. I think that that can be really applicable. On the other side, uh, I think it's, let me give you an example of that, Like, like for today in our own culture, what's important to people today? Well, one of the things you hear constantly is this issue of equality right? Equality amongst different colors of people and different socioeconomic backgrounds. Well, guess what? We believe equality is important as well, amen, as God's people. So we can join unbelievers and come alongside of them and go, we can join you with this. We believe in this type of equality that all people should be treated equal, independent of color or how much they make or where they're from. We agree with that. But let me share with you why we believe that to be true. Because we believe that God is the creator of all people. And because of that, they all have intrinsic value because all have been created in the image of God. Do you see how you take what the culture is believing and you use it? So I believe that's important. On the other side, I don't think that you and I have to become experts in every culture to be able to share the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So some people would sit there and go, well, I just don't have enough lessons. I just don't know enough in order to be, really be effective, to be able to contextualize the gospel everywhere I go. And even though I think we need to make an effort in it, The bottom line is the gospel is still simple. It's about Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. So oftentimes we sit back, and we may not have the words to be able to share to everybody, but we can sit back, and still, if we've been born again, we know enough of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, to be able to share it and allow the Holy Spirit to work in that individual's life to bring about faith. Amen? Boy, this is such good stuff. Amen, brother. This is good. And so so this is where we find ourselves. And so what do we do then with the passage that's ultimately before us? What do we do? Well, here's what I think the problem is. I got so bogged down in all of the arguments when I was studying this, sometimes you kind of lose the forest through the trees. You sometimes get to the point and you go, well, we're kind of getting our eyes off the ball. What was it really that Paul was actually saying? Whether we use it as a model or not, what was he actually saying? And here's what I see within the text, and see if you see it as well. The majority of what he was doing in engaging the culture was correcting the the Athenians' false view and understanding of who God is. And what I'm saying to you today is that is a large part of what sharing the gospel is with people around you, is correcting their false understanding of who they believe God is. Now, there's two things that he really does. First thing he does is he affirms them in something, and then he corrects them in a whole lot of things. So let's jump into that just very quickly. Let me show you, first of all, what he affirms them in. Look at verse 22, if you will. In verse 22, the Bible says, follow along in your Bibles, the Bible says, he says, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious.'" For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, here's where Paul is. He's in Athens. And what you need to know about the city of Athens is they are all false gods all the time. That's, they are the capital of pagan worship. In fact, it was believed that there were more gods and idols in Athens than the rest of the country. In fact, one of the, one of the early writers... Um, of, of their day said this, is, if you go to visit Athens, you have a better chance of running into a god than you do a man. That's a lot of gods, right? In fact, Paul notices here, and he says, look, I've seen all of these monuments, I've seen all of these temples, to all of these false and pagan gods. He goes, I even noticed that you had, a, you had something set aside, which actually was commemorating the unknown god. In other words, he says, these people had a God for everything, right? A monument for everything. And then somebody came up with the idea you know, there's a good chance that we may have left one out. And we don't want to offend any of the gods that we don't know about. So let's put a monument up to the unknown God just to make sure that we have their approval as well. And so he says, you are very religious people. Now today, people don't like to be called religious. They like to be called What? Spiritual. That's exactly right. It basically means the same thing, but at the same time, they want to be spiritual. It seems to be more lofty, more I don't know, greater, whatever it is. And so people like so he's coming them, he's commending them. But notice this: he's not commending them for their pagan worship. He's not sitting there and going, Way to go, way to worship all of these false gods. Good for you. He's not saying that. He's commending them in the fact that at least they believe in the supernatural. At least they believe. That there are, now in their case, many gods, they believe in many gods, but at least they believe in the concept of God itself. And so he goes and he, and he commends them uh, in this, and, and, and so this is a wonderful starting point. Now, why was this so important? It's important because you have little chance of coming to know God if you don't believe there is a God. Would you agree with that? And so, for example, one author says, no one will search for a path to a, dest- to a destination they don't believe ever exists. No, to come to know God, you must believe first. Believe that there is a God. You're probably familiar with Hebrews chapter eleven verse six, and you probably heard it many times. Never knew what it meant. This is what it means. The writer of Hebrews says, "He who comes to God must believe that He is." Simple, simple understanding. Paul goes to them and says, "Listen, I want to affirm you in the fact that you at least believe in the idea of God," and he affirms them with that. Now. I cannot, let me say this because I'm sure that we might have some skeptics here today. Maybe some folks that are like, hey, man, I got dragged here, you know, this is Thanksgiving. They drag me to the church every year. And I understand you may not be a believer. You may not be a follower of Jesus Christ. But and let me let me say this to you, and some of you are gonna be startled by this, but I will let you know that I cannot prove to you the existence of God. Can't do it. I can't prove it scientifically. I can't. I, I, some of you are like clinging for your children's ears. I, I, don't don't be too startled. Um, I can't prove to you scientifically that God exists. I can't prove to you mathematically. In other words, I can't take you into a, a, a science lab and take this little potion and this little potion and poof, the, there's God. Wow, there's God in the lab. Look at that. We just made him. He exists. I can't take you to. A mathematical equation, because I stink at math, but even if I could, I couldn't take you to one and go, you take this and you divide it by this and you do whatever, and it equals, look, there's God. And you sit there and go, wow, then God must exist. Here is what we identify with. The Bible does not suggest that we know that he lives that way. The Bible says that we know that he lives through two things, through God's revelation of himself to us and the giving of faith and granting of faith to you and I to believe what it is that he has revealed to us. That's how we believe. There is revelation in through faith. That's how we know that God exists. But with that said, that doesn't mean that we're going around chasing purple plaid unicorns, right? That, that what we believe has no founding or no reason whatsoever. We know that what we believe about the existence of God is reasonable altogether, Amen? look like i don't know too much turkey or something i i don't know what's going on i'll i'll just keep moving on and so so we, we understand we it's it's reasonable how because of the evidence outside of us and because of the evidence inside of us the evidence outside of us is found psalm 19 1 says this the heavens declare the glory of god the sky above proclaims his handiwork we believe in a creator because of the creation around us We look and we see the intricacies and we see the magnificence and we see the beauty and we see how everything has a particular order and we sit there and go, somebody had to be responsible for this, could not be an accident. But we also believe because of what's inside of us. The Bible in Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts. What he's saying is this, He says, you go to people all around the world, I've traveled probably 30 different countries in my lifetime, and you go anywhere, any any religion or non-religion, and you meet children, and there is a basic understanding of right and wrong, of what it means to kill, that it's wrong to kill, that it's wrong to cheat, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to disrespect your parents. Where do they come without that teaching in their culture? No, it is written within them. They come hardwired by whom? Their creator hardwires them to be able to know at least a basic difference between what is right and ultimately what is wrong. And so here's the idea. We know that we have atheists in this world, but we need to understand that atheists are not born, they're made. What do I mean by that? Nobody's born an atheist coming out going, man, I don't believe God exists little two-year-old. I just don't believe it. I don't believe any of it. No, they believe it because they're hardwired to. They recognize, the Bible says in Romans chapter one, that they recognize the truth, that there's something to be known by truth, but they are made. Atheists are made, why? Because they suppress the truth in all unrighteousness. They see the evidence of God around them. They feel the evidence of God within them and they continue to suppress it. They suppress it, they suppress it, and they suppress it. And so here's the deal. You say, okay, we're well, talking a lot about atheists, but here's the bottom line is, I don't really even know a whole lot of atheists, do you? I really don't. We we love to be able to get people that can really battle all the atheists. But what about the atheists? Go get the atheists, let's study about how we confront the atheists. And the truth is, is you might be an atheist here, we might have one or two, but for the most part, I don't meet a whole lot of them. Either did Paul. See, that's the context of the passage. He's not trying to prove that God exists. He's going to a group of people that already believe, at least in part, that God does exist. But what he's showing us is that we have the same problem that he does. Not that people don't believe in God, but what they believe about God is false. And you and I sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is about us correcting their false notions that they hold to and they believe in concerning the God that you and I worship. And so, first of all, he affirms them. The second thing, you notice this in verse 23. This is what he means when he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He goes, you're worshiping what you do not know. Does that sound familiar? It it should. Remember when Jesus, in John chapter 4, was with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well? He comes to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, actually, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. Here's what it means. What he means is you're worshiping because you know that there's a God out there. But you have not been given special revelation of knowing exactly who it is that you ought to be worshiping. The Jews have. Now what Paul is doing is he's like, all this time, you have been worshiping these false gods in ignorance, but now I'm going to change that, and I'm going to explain, and I'm going to correct your false understanding of who God is. Why? So that you could come to a true understanding to worship this true God. Isn't that great? Now notice what he does, three things that he, that he corrects. First of all, he tells them that God is the creator, that God is the creator. Notice, if you will, in verse 24. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now stop right there. That comment in and of itself would have been drastically contrary to everything that these Athenians believed. The different philosophers that they had, these, these, um, uh, the, the Epicurean philosophers believed that matter was eternal. They didn't believe that there was any creation of matter. They just believed it always existed. It's just kind of always been there. Kind of like, like dirty clothes next to the clothes hamper. It's just, I asked the kids, how to get there? I don't know. It's just always been there. Okay, it's just always been there. And so they wouldn't believe that. And then you had the Stoic philosophers that believed this. They, the Stoic philosophers believed that, that, that God was in all of matter. So he couldn't have created matter because he can't create himself. So for them, it's always been there as well. Today, we don't live amongst a culture that believes that the universe is eternal. Would you agree? No. Even secular psychologists, people who don't believe in God, and know that it had a beginning. But how do they suggest that it had a beginning? Well, it had a beginning because there was this big bang. This bang happened. Just this, this big bang. We got a lot of bangs that go on in, in, at our house, but nothing really good ever comes of it. It's just a lot of banging, and in here, there's absolutely nothing, and then all of a sudden a bang, and I don't know what's going on with these lights. I'm so glad we got them, but I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this or something. I don't know what's going on. Let's not videotape this one, if we will, for the internet. I don't know what. This is just craziness going on in here. So anyway, and so not only am I being blinded, but I'm being blinded by strobe lights, and so... Anyway, we'll try to get that fixed. So, I don't know what I'm talking about. What in the world are we? But the idea there is, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. Uh, the, the idea there is, is that people don't, I don't even know where I was. What was I talking about, Dan? Big bang. <laughs> big bang. There we go. Thank you so much. I was, only thing I knew to say was that the Gators be FSU. And that's the only thing that <laughs> came to my mind at that moment. So, let's go back to the Big Bang. Thank you so much for the four of you that were listening. So, the Big Bang... Right? And so this thing happens, and all of this comes in, and I don't know, it's just. It's just, like I said, it's hard for me to believe. that. That is so hard for me to believe that all of this happened from nothing to something without something causing that ultimately to be able to happen. That seems to take more faith. That's just me. It seems to take more faith than anything else. Now, so what they believe is it all came about, but they have to argue that it didn't come through God himself. Now, why is that important? Well, Paul actually alludes to it. Look at the rest of that verse. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and Of heaven and earth. He says if God has created everything, then God has the sovereign right to rule over everything to rule over and reign over everything. If he made it, he has the right to rule it. Are you you tracking with me? He has the right to be able to, to, to rule it. And so what they're saying is, is remember, when you consider that God created everything, that means that he had created the Athenians too, which means he's created you and he's created me. This is exactly what David said in Psalm chapter 24 and verse 1. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. You were created by God, God owns you you are not your own now why is it so important for Paul to come and argue this it's important to argue this here's why is because if if we can deny that God created us then there is no accountability to a higher power into God then you and I, if we're not created for a specific purpose by a specific God, we're here by accident, then we can live whatever way we want to. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We can all do whatever is right in our own eyes. Why? Because we are ultimately the determiner what is right and wrong and how we ought to live our lives. We are demigods ourselves. But Paul sits there and he tells them, you are not the God of the universe There is a God of the universe. He created all things, including you, which means he has the absolute sovereign right to tell you how you ought to live the life in which he has given you. So he comes and he gives them this particular argument. And let me ask you this question. How many of you believe this? How do you believe it? Some of you are sitting back and go, man, I believe every bit of it, man. I believe in creationism, and I've gone up and seen the big ark, and and I've gone up to Kentucky, and I've, I've seen all these things, and I love the Creation Museum, and I love all that. It's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking you if you cognitively believe that God created all things. I'm asking, have you submitted all things to the God who created you? And you sit there and go, well, I'm here on Sunday. I could be outside. Yeah, okay. Well, you gave God one day. But I know that you're much like me, and when I study this, I sit back and go, yeah, I've yielded myself in an essence of a once and for all salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, there were still things along the way constantly that I realize that I'm holding on to that I haven't submitted and I haven't allowed him to be the Lord over my life. In areas of finances, in areas of purity, in areas of what I watch and what I do and how I act and the different relationships. And God is sitting there and he's calling not only the unbelievers to come and recognize his sovereignty, but for the believers in Jesus Christ to recognize he's sovereign. He has the right to rule every area of your life and my life. Second thing that he says here, not only does he, does he come and say that God is the creator, but secondly, he says that God is the sustainer. Look at verse 24. He says, God does not live in temples made by man, nor is, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's point is this. He not only gave you your life, he sustains every moment of your life. And my life. Now, to really understand this, you have to understand the context again. As he's saying this, as he's saying, as he's saying that God does not dwell in in temples made by hands, he's saying it surrounded by temples who were made made by hands, right? And so this is this is crazy. They're sitting there what what do you mean? In essence, he's saying, Your God is way too small. Your God the our God is way bigger than what you think. Your gods need to be cared for. The God of the universe takes care of you. The God of the universe feeds you, cares for you, houses you. It's not to be the reverse. When I was at seminary in my my master's work in Southeastern Theological Seminary, (laughs) um, when I was there, it was great to be able to go to a school there. And the reason for that is because it's so diverse in the Raleigh-Durham area. I mean, you could take like a world religions class and visit all of those religions just in the Raleigh-Durham area. You would never have to leave the state. Never have to leave the area. You can go to a Muslim mosque, you could go to a Hindu temple, uh, uh, you can go and hang out with the Hare Krishna if they allow you to hang out with them. And so you could go uh, the Baha'i, you could meet all these people and go to their places of worship. Well, on the one day on our class that we were supposed to go to the Hindu temple, we all arrived, we all met there, and as we met there, there were police officers all around the outside. We saw yellow tape in different places, and they go, and a representative came out and said, We're sorry you're not gonna be able to worship with a, you're not gonna be able to come come and visit with us today. It has to be another time. And we're like, what happened? And they go, well, somebody bypassed our security and stole our gods. And I remember, I mean, honestly, I just kind of remember sitting there going, your gods needed a security system? I'm just in, if I was a seeker, I'd probably leave somewhere else because the bottom line is I don't need a god that I need to secure I need a God that will secure me. And I remember sitting there thinking. And so, what he's in essence saying is, he's trying to demonstrate that not only were we created by him and we're accountable to him, but he sustains every bit of our life, which means that we are fully and completely reliant on everything on God, not partially reliant. Every bit of us must be reliant on the person of God. That's what it takes for true salvation to actually occur and actually to appear. It's not a partial, I'll, 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 I'll trust him in this area of life. It's all trust. And when we trust him in that way and we recognize him as the creator of all and the giver of all, guess what? We begin to worship him. And so what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to get them, don't, don't place your faith in everything else, place your faith in the one who provides for you fully. 2 Timothy six seventeen says, not to be conceited, and Paul warns not to be conceited or to be fixed their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Again, in James chapter one and verse 17, we are reminded that every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from where? comes from above. Now, I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. If it was like mine, it was a Thanksgiving. Your whole family gets together. Everybody comes. It's so great to be able to see everybody. There's all this kind of weird intricacies and family members that you're like, yeah, just don't say this to them and don't say, you know, like the, like the matriarch comes to you and say, don't mention, don't mention, don't mention. And so you just sit back and go, I can't mention anything. I'll just shut up over here in case I'm going to upset people, right? Now, I'm not talking about our family. I'm talking about yours. And so... So you just kind of sit back and, and uh, you know, you kind, of, you kind of go through all this and then everybody kind of around the table, you do the whole, hey, what are you grateful for? You know, I'm grateful for this and I'm grateful for this. And the man better say, I'm grateful for you, honey. That's what I'm mostly grateful for. Now, I'm also grateful for my, my cable television and my team winning, but, God, but, but I'm mostly grateful for you, honey, right? And that's how you kind of work and smooth all that stuff out. But what's amazing to me is that at Thanksgiving, both believers and unbelievers celebrate this. But the truth of the matter is, is Thanksgiving for unbelievers is nothing more than sitting around and admiring idols, pagan idols. Hey, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for all my stuff. I'm grateful for... All of my, uh, of my house and I 'm grateful for my job and I 'm grateful for my family and I 'm grateful for all of these things that surrounding me. but do you know that true that thanksgiving is giving thanks to someone? And if you think that all those things are just you to be a joy see, this is what paganism is. Paganism and idolatry is basically never going beyond the creation. The creation is there for you to be able to know that there's somebody behind it, so the one behind it gets all the glory and the honor and the praise. And so the idea here is when we realize, when we're sitting there at Thanksgiving, we realize that there's not anything that we have that was not given to us by God in all of his goodness and grace, then we fail to be dependent on him and we forget we, we fail to be truly thankful to him. Amen? Third thing, very quickly, as quickly as I can. i got one minute. Never get it done. All right, number three, God is in control. God is in control. Some of you are praying we'd be done in one minute, but we're not. Number, number, 20, or number 26, verse 26. Paul says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Remember, this is a correction. And what he's doing is he's correcting uh, their arrogance, The Greeks were very arrogant people, especially when they looked around at the barbarians. Oh, those nasty barbarians. They use their hands to eat, and they're not cultured like we are, and they don't have all the art that we have. They're despicable. And so he begins to correct them. And the first thing that he ends up saying is he tells them, he says that all humanity came from one man. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Adam. And he says, so you think that you're superior to somebody else. He goes, you're not superior to anybody else. All men have been created in the image of God, and they are equal. All come from one man. So what is he doing? He's, he, he, he's striking at their pride. Uh, then again, no, notice what he says. Second thing is, he lets them know and they would have been so proud of their culture and their expanse and the Greek culture. Uh, then he goes on, and he moves, this, and he says that God determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Here's what he's saying. He goes, you as Greeks think you're so great because because your kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks, had had lasted so long and and, and it spread so wide and its influences even now in this Roman culture. You're so proud of that. He goes, I'm telling you, you had nothing to do with that. God is the one who determined what nations rise, when they fall, how wide they spread, and when they ultimately decline. You had nothing to do with it. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get them to understand that we are not in control of our own destiny. And that is the basic misunderstanding of so many people who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is what they believe. You ask them, how will you get into heaven when you die? What's the answer? I'll be a good person. And what are they doing? It's the pride in their own ability for them to be able to control their own destiny. I will be good enough to be able to get before God, and I will be so good that I will secure heaven forever for him. That is a false teaching. That is contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. What he's trying to get them to understand is, you do not control your destiny. God controls your destiny. Just as he saw the rise and fall of the nations, he will ultimately determine the rise and fall of each man. Now notice what he says. I need to to hurry here. You need to listen quicker if you will. Verse 27, and they should seek God. Here's the the response. In all of the fact that God is a creator, in the fact that he is a sustainer, in the fact that he controls all things, there's only one appropriate response. Here it is in verse 27 that they should seek God in the hope that they might might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us and then he goes into these quotes in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we indeed are his offspring here's just simply what he's saying when you come to this kind of truth of this type of god there's only one response that is that you seek after him the problem is he's closer than what you think the problem is he's further away than what you think because your sin is keeping you from god And no matter how many good things you end up trying to do, no matter how how many temples you build and how many times you come and try to honor and do good works before him, it will never, ever, ever, ever be enough. And so here, what he tells him, he says, you ought to be there, but you're far off. Then he says this, verse 27, being then God's offspring, notice, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Think about that. I love that last part, imagination of man. That's not who God is. You know why that's important? Because I don't know very many of you that have a little image of God in stone in silver and gold at home where you bow down and worship. But what men do, and this is the whole problem with those that he's seeking, they have a false understanding and they've created an image of God inside of their own minds. That's the God they worship. Have you ever heard somebody sit back and say this? My God would never send anybody to hell. My God would never judge anybody. My God would never let those things happen. But when you get into the word of God, which reveals the mind of God, you understand that is exactly who God is. That God does judge those who are sinful, and he is gracious to those who will repent and turn to him. Are you all tracking with this? And so this is, this is what he says. He in your mind, now look at verse 30. The times of arrogance of God, over, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, meaning Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You following how he's doing this? He says, you've had a false view of God, you've placed your faith in all of these things, in your works and what you're doing, I'm telling you, God is not like that. God is like this. God is a God who will judge, but he will judge, not gi- but also giving rescue to those who will repent and place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 32, notice finally, this is how people respond to this, by the way. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among whom, then he gives a list of people. Here's what he's saying. When you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's only three ways to respond. There's only three ways to be able to respond to this message today. That is that you believe it, that you say, I might be interested and open to be able to hear a little bit more of it. And the third is, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, let, me, let, me, let me share with you just for a moment. I think we can learn a couple things through this. Obviously, there's a clear call to be able to believe, to repent and believe. Would you, would you agree? If you're not a born-again believer, if you don't know Christ, this is who this God is. There will be a judgment. And no matter how good you are, you will never be good enough. He was good for you. God sent Jesus Christ to be able to to obey all the laws for you and to die for you so that the wrath of God that was meant for you would be placed on him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. This is his love that he's demonstrated for you and say, well, what do I do? You repent, you turn from your sin. You say, I've had no idea, I was in ignorance, but now I place my faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's what we need to do. There's another aspect of this that I had to remember. You know, some of you are so nice. Uh, Nick, you can come at this time. Uh, but but some of you are so nice, and I love that you're so nice. But you're almost too nice when you share the gospel, some of you. Now, some of you aren't. Some of you are a little edgy when you're sharing the gospel. But some of you are just too nice. It's like you're trying to sell Girl Scout cookies or something. It's, it's would, you, would you like this? It's sweet, and it's wonderful, and it's yummy. Mm, taste that. It's great. Overpriced. But it's great. You can have this. These are wonderful things. You'll love this. You won't won't reject it. But the truth of the matter is here's what I want you to know. When you are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must correct the false understanding of those who believe in false concepts of God, or they cannot believe. Some will believe, some will mock. And some will say, give me a little bit more time to think this through. But we have to be able to confront that false understanding of who God is with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you. We pray.